So we've, um, we have uh, learned the book of Tehillim in the past, but not in the recent past. So, uh, so for this group, it should be uh, a, new, a new study. It was a suggestion a few people had uh, who were interested in it. There were other options, too, that we can discuss in terms of upcoming series of uh, other books that we've not yet touched upon, like the book of Shemuel. We started, we never finished. That might be an interesting thing to complete um, or to review the beginning and then, and then complete uh, for those who weren't here for the first part of it. Uh, but I think that uh, Tehillim is something, it's such a universal, uh, a, a book of, of, that, that's used so universally, and it's such a part of our religious life. We read Tehillim all the time, we read Mizmorim all the time on all different occasions. Pretty much there isn't an occasion or a life cycle event or holiday that doesn't have some passage of Tehillim that's associated with it, or more than one passage of Tehillim that's associated with it. And even in the Beit HaMikdash, on any particular day, there would be uh, some special mizmor, some special chapter of the book of Tehillim that was read. So obviously every day of the week had uh, the song that was sung by the Levi'im, which was one of the chapters of Tehillim. Uh, each and every day of the week. And of course, Mizmor Shil Yom HaShabbat, there's, there's one for Shabbat, but there's also one for each day of Sukkot, for Pesach, for Shavuot, for Rosh Chodesh, and so on and so forth. So uh, the, the book of Tehillim is a book that spans pretty much, there's even a, there's, there's a Mizmor to say in the house of God forbid somebody passes away in the house of the, uh, of the mourner. There's, there are mizmorim that are for the occasion of marriage. There are mizmorim that are for the occasion of distress, when a person is in distress. And of course, Hallel that we read on the holidays is made up all of chapters of Tehillim. So the book of Tehillim accesses every aspect of human experience and human emotion and connects it to God, connects it to our religious life. It is the Jewish poetry, basically. It is the Jewish song. Every culture, every society has its music, has its songs. And we can think in, in America, for example, and I, I only have the reference point of America because, um, uh, because that's where I grew up, but there are certain iconic songs that, are, that reflect, the, that, that express and symbolize American culture, classic songs that everybody knows and that somehow captures something unique. There are common language um, that, uh, of the culture. And people will refer to them. People will draw from them. People will use them. A, a presidential candidate might have them play in the background at a, at a, at a campaign event, whatever. You know, all kinds of different uh, uses for music. But there are, there, even in American culture, there are, there's music or lyrics that are associated with sad times. There's music or lyrics that are associated with happy times, with times we're expressing our pride in being an American, whatever. You get the idea. In, you know, in every culture, it is the same. So what makes Tehillim unique is that it is written to express, to give voice to the Jewish experience of life, the same way that music normally gives expression to our experience, it puts words and music to our experience, and therefore it actually deepens experience. When you're able to put words and music to experience, you deepen it, you, you stimulate reflection on the experience and you deepen it. If you think about like a wedding, and you hear music, there's romantic music that sort of brings out the theme of love and connection and the sacredness of the moment, and, the, and, and that might be when the bride is walking down the, you know, to the chuppah, or that might be during certain parts of the reception where they play music that is more evocative of, uh, of the sentimental aspects of the wedding. Then there are certain aspects that are of the celebratory music that is played. So all of this music takes an aspect of our experience and makes it more pronounced, and therefore intensifies it and helps us to engage with it more deeply. That's how music works. We don't really usually use music, so, you know, in, in, in non-Jewish culture, they use music also at funerals. We don't, we don't do that. But in non-Jewish culture, they use sad music. We usually associate mourning with absence of music, actually. But in non-Jewish culture, they even use music during mourning. They have like certain melody, dirge melodies for sad times, we have like melodies for keynote and things like that for Tisha B'Av. 
So even there, the melodies that are in that are sung for Tisha B'Av set a tone, intensify an experience, and that's how music works on us. So when we think about Tehillim, a lot of times we don't think about music, but actually Tehillim was meant to be performed and sung. It was written by David HaMelech as poetry, but much of it, if not all of it, was meant to be performed and sung by the Levi'im and the Beit HaMikdash. So even though we generally read it to ourselves or we might read it in groups, it's actually meant to be something that can be performed. And sometimes there are uh, aspects of the Tehillim that are notations for how it's to be sung. For example, you might have a you might have a, 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 a passage that says like, Lama Natseach Ala Shminit, Mizmor Le David. That's one of the, that's one of the Tehillim. Ala Shminit means on an eight-stringed instrument, meaning this is meant to be played accompanied by an eight-stringed instrument. I don't know how to play, what notes to play. I guess they would know what that meant. But the point is that there was a musical aspect to it also. It's supposed to connect our values, our experience, our emotion with our awareness of Hashem. That's what David HaMelech wanted to do. David HaMelech was a person who integrated within himself so many different, uh, so many different identities. Uh, to me, he's like the ultimate example of the well-balanced or the well-rounded individual. He was a scholar of Torah we see. He was a, a, a great political leader. He was a warrior, but he also was a musician who used to play for Shaul, for King Shaul used to play music. And he also wrote poetry, the beautiful poetry of Tehillim. And he also was a person who was deeply involved in interpersonal relationships. He was a very sensitive and emotional person. He had every aspect of human experience embodied in himself. You don't usually find a person who is both a warrior on the battlefield and also writes beautiful poetry. They don't usually go together. Or who plays in an instrument in a sensitive way and also goes and, I don't know, kills his enemies, you know, and uh, with his bare hands tears a lion apart or whatever. He, you know, he tells stories of, of his valor um, and his accomplishments. You don't usually find these coexisting in one person, and yet with David HaMelech you find really a well-rounded, well-balanced person uh, who in a way like kind of like embraces every aspect of our experience. And so therefore when he wrote Tehillim, which he wrote to be a book that would tap into and give voice to these different elements of our experience and connect them to our relationship with God. That's always the goal. You're feeling joyful? Connect that to your relationship with God. You're feeling grateful? Connect it to your relationship with Hashem. You're feeling in distress? That's also an opportunity to call out to Hashem. You're, you're seeking enlightenment and wisdom? That's, a, that's an opportunity to connect to God. You see the beauty of nature? There are some of the most beautiful, beautiful tehillim, like Barachi Nafshi, that's read on Rosh Chodesh, describing the cycles of nature in such a moving way. It was once said it would be worth learning Hebrew just to understand that one part of tehillim because it's so moving and it so perfectly describes nature in such a, uh, in such a beautiful way. So you're looking at nature or somebody will go and they'll see the ocean and they'll say, wow, the ocean is really beautiful. Or they'll go to a, they'll see mountains or they'll see wildlife or they'll go and see national parks, whatever it is. And they'll be impressed by the aesthetic beauty, the external beauty that they observe. David Melech takes that experience and anybody can have that. The experience of wonder. You look at mountains, you look at vast oceans, you look at elements of nature that really inspire. You look at the sun and the moon. Well, you're not supposed to look at the sun, but look at the, the moon and the stars, right? And you say, wow, what an incredible universe. David HaMelech takes that experience and he says, put that in the context of your relationship with God. Don't just say, what, a be- what beautiful stars and a beautiful moon. How can you use that experience? How can you tap into that experience and make it a way to connect with God? Because that was something that David did. He used every aspect of his personality and he was a very, very multifaceted personality to, as a vehicle to relate to God. That's what made him so unique, in my opinion, because he was such a complicated person. You could split him into five different people. The politician, the intellectual, the, uh, you know, the uh, romantic, the musician, the poet, 
the scholar, all of these things, you could split him into all kinds of different categories and, and all kinds of different personalities that coexist in him. And there is something in Tehillim that reflects each and every one of these um, aspects of his personality. But because he was who he was, therefore we're able to relate. If you're a person who has, uh, is a warrior, if you're a person who is an intellectual, if you're a person who is more romantic and sentimental, if you're more musical, if you're a person who um, is, is attracted to the, to the beauty of nature, if you're a person who is more in touch with the complexities of emotion, if you're a person who's in distress or you're a person who's experiencing joy, any aspect of experience and any aspect of your identity, you can find something in Tehillim that speaks to that and addresses it. If a person is in mourning, there are Mizmorim that talk about how do you respond to mourning in a way that puts it in perspective. So I find that it really it embraces every aspect of the personality, every aspect of human experience, and that's why it's probably the most used book. Meaning, we read the Torah every week. So people obviously are the most familiar with the stories of the Torah. If they go to Kenny Sabri Shabbat, they're eventually going to read. They might miss a detail here and there, but basically they're familiar with the story. They know what's going on. People read daily a lot. It's something that's read a lot. The people that read it don't always understand what they're reading, but they know that it's very important. They know that, and, and those who do understand it and comprehend what they're saying really can connect to it. Anyone can find a point of connection to it. On David? Well, he's a musician, because he plays music. He writes poetry. He's a military man. He's a politician. He is an intellectual, because he writes a lot about his learning of Torah and how important that is to him. Um, he sort of like covers, you know, he has the depth of religiosity and the depth of emotion and the depth of intellect. Like he has all of these different aspects of his personality. Everyone fails, you know. I mean, Everybody fails in some things. Shlomo Amelech, let's say, had the intellectual side. He, wasn't, he didn't get involved in as many wars, and he wasn't as astute a politician as David. Even though he was a good leader, um, he wasn't on the level of David, I don't think. He caused a lot of... Uh, he, not everything he did was as uh, sensitive as David. Maybe. But he had... You know, he also wrote Mishlei. He wrote books that were more of an intellectual bent in terms of helping people to apply the wisdom of Torah to their lives. Yeah, but he would never have written, a, I can't imagine Shlomo Melech writing a book of Tehillim, which is poetry, which is meant to tap into the whole gamut of human emotion and experience. I don't feel like Shlomo Melech had the same well-roundedness as David. I'm not going to sit here in judgment of Shlomo Melech either, but he doesn't, David seems unique that he, and I think that's why a lot of times <laughs> That's why the rabbis say maybe that like the five, Tehillim is actually five books. They divide it into five books and they say these five books mirror the five books of the Torah. And they even say that Adam, going back to last week's parasha, Adam would have lived a thousand years. He only lived 930 years because he gave 70 years for David HaMelech to be able to live. Otherwise David HaMelech wouldn't have been created. What does that mean? What does that midrash mean? I think what it means is that David is an expression of everything that it means to be human. Adam was the first man. But if you're looking for somebody who really exemplifies all the different aspects of human existence and experience, and, and that anyone, can, you can connect to David. David is a person, he, in, a, in that way, I would say the two most relatable characters to me, to my very limited knowledge and experience, to me the two most accessible and relatable characters in all of Tanakh are probably David and Yaakov Avinu because they are the characters that you see the full picture of their humanity. You see Yaakov as somebody who has conflicts at home, who falls in love, who has conflicts with his kids, who has to deal with other people, who has a relationship with Hashem that is developing. He has all of these different aspects of his personality and, and we can find a way to relate to him. I have a hard time to relate to Avraham Avinu. He's too holy. He's too much of an ideal. He's like larger than life. Abraham Avinu, he left everything behind to go and preach the oneness of God. I mean, he's like, like in a different level. Nothing was important to him but that, and you can almost not relate to him. He's like superhuman. Yitzchak, we don't see as much of his personality. 
Yaakov, you see his personality. And then David, again, you see the full gamut of his personality. All of those different aspects you can relate to. And they're all in Tehillim. And I think that's why the rabbis say that the five books of Tehillim and the five books of the Torah, they're related to each other. Because the Torah is about how to live life. The Torah addresses every aspect of life and how to integrate every aspect of life into your service of God. And really what Tehillim does is it does that in terms of your mentality. How can you look at every experience of life? It's one thing to have mitzvot that address every aspect of life. But it's another thing to give expression to how can I take any experience in life and put the perspective of a divine perspective, a religious person's perspective on that uh, on that phenomenon, on that experience. How do I shape my mind and my, my, how do I filter my experience through the framework of Judaism so that whatever I'm going through, I can turn to Tehillim and find a way to look at that experience that will be healthy and adaptive and spiritually stimulating, will lead to spiritual growth. That's what I think Tehillim is really, really does. And that's why Tehillim seems very random. When we read through it, you see that every chapter doesn't really necessarily in any clear way lead to the next one. They seem to be random. But that's how life is. Life is also kind of random. I mean, life experiences, God doesn't say, I'm going to give you. It's like the book of Mishlei is the same way. It's random different sayings because life isn't planned out from our perspective. We don't see the plan. So things come to, we're not prepared. Like I wasn't prepared to suffer, God forbid, a tragedy right now. I don't know how to respond to that. That wasn't what I signed up for. I wasn't prepared for this very exciting, positive thing in my life. I wasn't prepared for this dilemma in my life, for this distress. I wasn't prepared for it. How do I process all of these different things from a religious perspective? Tehillim doesn't give you necessarily a prescription of what to do, but it gives you a way to see that experience in light of your relationship with Hashem, perspective on the experience, okay? To process it through the prism framework of religious values. That's really what, uh, what, what Tehillim, to me, really does. More than what the Torah does, which is about how to respond, how to react, how to behave, how to think about aspects of life in light of the Torah. But Tehillim speaks to us in terms of shaping the way we experience those, uh, you know, those events in our lives, how we process them. It's on a different level. It's on a different level um, than, the book, than the Torah because the Torah is, uh, speaks in a more abstract sense about laws and about and about lessons and concepts and ideas, but Tehillim brings it to the level of experience. And the very first Mizmor I wanted to be able to study tonight, actually just the opening chapter, um, which is at first, you know, it's very short, very famous, and it doesn't say the author, it doesn't say it's written by David HaMelech, even though we attribute the book of Tehillim in its entirety to David HaMelech, pretty much, except for the chapters that are explicitly attributed to others. It says, Happy is the man who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. And he doesn't stand in the way of the sinners. And he doesn't sit with those who are letzim. Letzim are people who are mocker, mockery. They make a mockery of things, okay? Scorners, I think they translated in English. What is it describing here? First of all, it's describing a person who is, ashray means fortunate or happy, is the person who doesn't do these things. Who doesn't go according to the advice of the bad people and he doesn't stand in the way of the bad people. He doesn't mean... That doesn't mean standing in their way, meaning blocking them. I mean, he doesn't stand on the path of the bad people and he doesn't sit with the bad people, right? So it's a strange way to open up a book. First of all, you're defining the person by what they're not. Fortunate, happy is the person who doesn't do this and doesn't do that and doesn't do the other thing. He's going to say in a second what you should do. But it's funny to start the book by talking about what kind of relationships you shouldn't have with other people or with specifically actually with bad influences. And interestingly, the book of Mishlei opens with a similar emphasis. 
talking about the influences in our lives and what an impact they can have. It's our nature that we don't make decisions purely independently. We rely upon the advice of other people. We rely upon the guidance of other people. We have mentors, we have friends. We might imitate or try to learn from the examples of people around us, for better or for worse. Anybody who teaches kids knows that if you have a kid who causes trouble and then other kids see that example and try to imitate, it could be a big problem. But peer pressure is very powerful. David HaMelech is saying from the very beginning, you know where the happiest person is? He doesn't walk. This is chapter one. This is on page uh, Aleph in here. The advice of the wicked means a person doesn't stand on their own. They always need guidance from elsewhere. Nobody can make it purely on their own. So they turn to other people. But if they turn to the advice of the wicked, or they stand, he shouldn't stand on the path of the sinners. And he shouldn't sit with the scorners. He shouldn't sit with the people who make a mockery of things. In other words, he should avoid, or she should avoid, the influence of people who have the wrong values. Be very careful about going with the advice or going along, or imitating the example or associating yourself too deeply with those who have values who are con- that are contrary to, to, to the correct values. Because it's our nature to try to find sources of support and influence and guidance and if we make the wrong decision in that area it could be a disaster the biggest disaster is ending up with a peer group or an associate or a mentor or an advisor who is who has the wrong values because then our life is in their hands and they can cause us tremendous damage and as the, as rashi explains or the commentaries explain It first says a person walks, and then it says a person stands, and then it says a person sits, meaning don't walk according to the advice of the bad people, and don't stand on their path, and don't sit with them. Meaning the more you do it, the more stable it's going to be. At first, you walk in the the advice of the bad person, meaning you take one piece of advice. Then you stand. Standing means it's a more stable thing. It's not just that you did one action imitating or following the advice that was uh, uh, from a bad source. But standing means something where it's more regular. And then sitting means fully established. You fully become a part of the circle of the people who are the negative influence. It's a gradual process, but it eventually happens. You associate a little bit with people that have values that are unhealthy <coughs> or that contradict, your, uh, contradict the values of Torah and then you become a little bit more comfortable and it becomes a little bit more a part of you and then eventually you sit down with them and that's your circle. In the beginning, you just saw them from afar. But then you associate more and more with them until you become a part of that group. Sitting down means now you're a part of that group. Okay? And that's what... So David HaMelech is saying the first thing a person needs to do if they're going to have a healthy perspective on life and they're going to have the right perspective is to make sure to avoid the influences of people who will instill in them the wrong perspective. Because if you have the wrong perspective, then you're already behind. If you need to start out free of influences that will gradually transform you for the worse. And you think that a little bit of influence, a little bit of association, a little bit of engagement is okay, and it won't have a long-term impact. But the Rambam actually says, he says there are, that it's a nature of a person to follow after those around them. Everybody wants to fit in. Everybody wants to be one of the group. Everybody wants to be accepted. Nobody wants to deviate from what is considered normal or what, what the expectations are of the peer group, family, society in which they live. People want to feel that they're a part of it. So therefore, they're going to conform their behaviors and they're going to conform their, uh, you know, their actions to the expectations of the people around them. And that's why he say, don't allow yourself to be duped into that. And then he says, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? So then where, where am I supposed to get my guidance from? 
If I can't get guidance from the people around me, what should I do? Rather, in the Torah of Hashem is his desire. And in his Torah, he reflects or he speaks or he discusses or he learns day and night. Now notice, really, when we read this verse, what it means is that he learns Torah, the Torah of Hashem, that's where he gets his guidance. That's where he gets his sense of what's right and wrong. Not from a person who might have another agenda. Okay? But from, he gets it from the Torah. That's where he seeks guidance and he gains guidance. And it says, He reflects upon and discusses Torah day and night. But it says, His Torah. Now literally, what does it mean? It literally means... The person's energy is invested in the Torah of Hashem. And in the Torah of Hashem, he speaks or talks or is focused day and night. That's literally what it means. But Torah to means his Torah. It doesn't say in the Torah of Hashem. First it says the person will learn the Torah of Hashem. And then it says, Uf Torah to, And in his Torah, he will reflect day and night. Why doesn't it say, why doesn't it say it twice? It should say, the person learns the Torah of Hashem day and night and reflects on it day and night, meaning he desires the Torah of Hashem and he reflects on it day and night. Why does it say, Uf Torah to? And in his Torah, he reflects day and night or he discusses day and night. Why? So the rabbis explain that what it means is that when a person learns, in the beginning it's external to them. So it's called the Torah of Hashem. The Torah belongs to Hashem. But once you understand the Torah and you see why it's good and you see the benefit and you see the reason and you see how much it enlightens and enables you to deal with and understand things better, it becomes your Torah. It becomes yours. It becomes a part of you. It's like, you know, they say you can't unsee what you've seen. Once you understand certain things, you can't ununderstand them. They become a part of you. So an external influence that you're just conforming to because you want to fit in with a certain social group, that when you're out of the social group, you can feel relieved. Everyone's had that experience. Everyone. That when they're around certain people, they feel social pressure to act a certain way. And when they're out of that situation, they say, oh... What a relief. I'm not around those people that I have to act such, way, such and such way or pretend that I'm something I'm not or go along with them. What a relief. But when you learn Torah, it's not a conforming to an external agency. It's something that becomes a part of you. That's why it says, Ki im Hashem The person's desire is in the Torah of Hashem. Meaning, instead of having a desire to fit in with people who may be unscrupulous, who may be morally corrupt, who may be the embodiment of all kinds of values that we would reject, instead of desiring to fit in with them and to know what they would want me to do so I can be part of the cool group or whatever it is, you say, no. I want to know what does Hashem say I should do. That should be what a person asks themselves in every interaction. In every situation. What is the advice of Hashem in the situation? Where can I... And in His Torah you reflect day and night because you're always seeking insight into your life from the Torah. Not what would the guy next door, what would my neighbor think if I do such and such? What would my friend at work, my colleague, my fellow student, this person or that person think of me if I, do, if I take a certain course of action? Don't worry about that. Worry about what Hashem would want from you. Worry about what Hashem would want you to do in the situation. That's what it means. His desire is in the Torah of Hashem. And day and night he's seeking that wisdom from Hashem. And you know what happens to that wisdom from Hashem is it becomes a part of you. You don't feel like it's imposed on you from the outside. That's the beauty of it. When you're trying to conform to what other people advise you, direct you, expect from you, put pressure on you... You always experience it as something from the outside that you're being pressed with. But if you lived on a desert island away from all of those people, you couldn't care less what they thought. Right? 
But when it comes to Hashem's, if you ask yourself a different question, not what would people expect, what would my, what would my associates, my colleagues, the people around me, my neighbors, but you ask, what would Hashem expect from me and think is the best for me to do in this situation? And that's the question you ask? That, when you have the answer to that question, it becomes a part of you. You would do that whether you were on a desert island or whether you were on a busy street. It wouldn't matter because it would become a part of how you see the situation. You now have insight from Hashem's Torah into your situation, into your circumstance that guides you irrespective of what anyone else in the world thinks or does or says or how they react or how they respond, how they judge you or don't judge you. doesn't matter. Why should you care about how they judge you when you know that in the light of truth you're doing the right thing? So they judge wrong, so what? If everybody else in the world judges wrong, why, does that, why is that bad for you? That's how a person should really think. We're more, we value people's judge, positive judgment of us more than we value doing good a lot of times. But in reality, if a person is doing what's right in the eyes of Hashem, what they know is true and they know is proper, then they should just feel pity for the people who judge them negatively and don't understand that. Shouldn't feel bad about themselves. It's like a kid in school that purposely fails the test so the other kids won't think he's a nerd. Did you ever know anybody like that? It's like, I don't want to seem like I'm too smart, so I'm going to write the wrong answer so everyone will think I'm a dummy because if they think I'm smart, they're going to look down on me. And we would all say, I think most of us would say, that's a very unwise course of action to take. Why would you want to get the wrong answer, ruin your own record, school record, not learn the material or whatever, in order that other people will think such and such about you. What good is what other people think about you? So that's really what he's saying. He's saying, seek answers from the Torah, and it becomes part of you. And then he describes the person like this. He says he's like a, he's like a tree planted by the water. This person it is like a tree planted by the water that gives fruit in the proper time and its leaves don't wither and everything he does succeeds. What is, a, what is that metaphor of a tree planted by the water? What's unique about a tree planted by the water as opposed to a tree planted anywhere else? The source of its life, the source of what makes it thrive is its own. It has the, it's planted by the water. It doesn't need any other circumstance to make it thrive. It's self-sufficient because it's planted by the water. The water is right there. It's integrated with the water. And, it's, and the water here is the wisdom of the Torah, basically. When you have the wisdom of Torah, you don't need the validation of anybody else. And therefore, your fruit will come in the proper time, meaning you'll make the decisions in the proper time that are best. And your Leaves will not wither. The rabbis say that that means even the things that are of secondary importance. When a person is living by the, the life of Torah, there are certain things that are essential that they do. And there are certain things that are secondary. Even those things won't wither. Everything will be of value because it's integrated in a personality that's living by the wisdom of Torah. And everything you do, everything you do is going to succeed. He says, He says, This is not true of the wicked. They are like chaff. Chaff is like when you, when you separate wheat from, from, from the stalks, there's like dust that comes off. You know, there's dust that comes off. That dust that the wind blows away. Notice the difference. The righteous person or the wise person is the person who is stable, like a tree planted by the water, deriving its nourishment and growing and thriving in every way. The wicked person is like chaff that's blown by the wind. A person who's always seeking the approval of the people around them is like chaff blown by the wind. Whatever the flow of the wind is, they're going to want to conform to it. Whatever the fad is, they're going to want to fit in. Whatever people are saying, that's what they're going to want to do. They don't have a stable internal sense of right and wrong. They're dependent upon whatever the trends are in the culture or the society around them. So they are blown like the wind. 
And they talk about politicians like that. They say they're like a weather vane, whatever way the wind blows them, that's the direction they say. They say to whatever audience what they want to hear so they can get votes. Right? That's how politicians work. A lot of us are politicians with our lives. We try to show others what they want to see. So we're always trying to keep up with what people expect and what people demand and what people think and whatever is in fashion. I'm not talking about clothing. Thing in terms of beliefs and opinions and behaviors and actions and what we say, what we do. We don't want to be too religious. We don't want to be too irreligious. We don't want to be too righteous. We don't want to be too honest. We don't, because people will look down at us. We want to be too smart. All of these things because of what other people will say. So he's saying a wicked person is blown by the wind. He goes all over the place. He goes all over the place. The righteous person, the good person, is planted firmly by the source of water. They thrive. Their fruits come at the right time, meaning they make decisions and choices and they produce fruit. Their labor produces fruit at the right time. And then he says, Therefore, That's why the wicked cannot stand up in judgment. And the sinners cannot stand up in the congregation of the righteous. Meaning that the wicked person, because he, is, he doesn't have his own set of internal values, his own stable position, but he simply gets, allows himself to be blown around by whatever the fashionable attitudes and beliefs and, 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 and fads are of the day, he can't stand up in judgment. Meaning he's lacking that stability. He's lacking that ability to stand. And he certainly can't stand in the congregation of the righteous. In the beginning it said, don't be in, uh, in the, in the, uh, among the, uh, uh, the, the chata'im. Don't be in their path. Don't be seated among the scorners. Don't allow them to influence you. Right? Now it's talking about the wicked person. The wicked person isn't admitted to the congregation of the righteous. He's not going to be allowed in. And that's why it says, Ki Hashem Tzadikim Toved. Hashem knows the way of the righteous. Meaning that is what Hashem wants. That is what is known to Hashem. Means that's the way that Hashem chooses and wants. Toved. The way of the wicked is lost or destroyed. It's lost. What does it mean it's lost or destroyed? Why didn't it say Hashem destroys it? It says Hashem knows, meaning He cares about and nurtures and supports the way of the righteous. And then it says, and the way of the wicked is lost or destroyed. Why doesn't it say, he, Hashem loves the, the, the righteous and he destroys the wicked. What do you mean the, the way of the wicked is lost? What does it mean? It means that Hashem doesn't need to destroy the person who is blown this way and that way by external forces. Because they'll get destroyed themselves. It's going to be lost. It's going to dissipate. It's going to evaporate. It doesn't have any substance in its own right. It's like the chaff that's blown by the wind. That's why the wicked person can't stand in judgment. That's why the wicked person can't be a part of the congregation of the righteous, which is the congregation of the people that have stable and clear sense of right and wrong and are living their lives according to definite values. The wicked person can't stand in such a congregation because he doesn't have that. His sense of right and wrong is whatever is coming to him from the outside not something that's really coming to him from the inside. And that's why it says that it's just going to be lost. That way is just going to disappear. It's going to evaporate. It has no substance to it. Whereas the way of the righteous is the way of Hashem. That a person seeks out the wisdom of Torah in their life, applies it to themselves, internalizes it. It becomes a part of them. And it becomes a stable source of insight and guidance to them. Think about the difference. A person knows that they, if they have a dilemma, if they're going through a difficult experience, if they're challenged by something, if, they're, if they have questions about something, if they have a certain problem they're going through, they can turn to the Torah and the Torah will give them the wisdom for navigating that. How to look at it, how to understand it, how to approach it, what the right values are to apply to it. And they can have the confidence that that's going to be consistent with everything else that they do in their lives, that they're leading their lives according to the Torah. As opposed to a person who doesn't have that stable source of water sustaining them, but is always chasing what everybody else is doing.
and therefore does, can't really explain why they do what they do. Because what they're doing from moment to moment is just a result of being battered back and forth by different trends around them. You know, and nowadays it's even worse because everybody carries a phone, they're bombarded with all the social media. We used to just have television, you could turn it off. Okay, now we have the social media, we're constantly connected, and we don't just put things out, we're also bringing things in, and they infiltrate our minds, and they influence us, and they affect us in all kinds of ways, especially young, impressionable people, but really everybody. And then they, there's the pressure to try to conform. There's a the pressure to try to allow, to, to allow the opinions that are popular and that are accepted to become, uh, you know, to, to become a part of the way that we live our lives and the choices that we make. And to guide us too so we can, be a part, so we can feel accepted. So we can feel validated. That's what we want. But that makes for a bad situation because one minute the trend goes one way and one minute the trend goes the other way. And if you really wanted to f- find some kind of a consistent sense of what is the right thing to do, it's not there. One thing that our society doesn't offer is a consistent sense of right and wrong, a consistent wisdom for how to look at life in an intelligent way, in a healthy way, in a way that's really gonna lead you to success. It does not have that. It just has slogans that everybody's following. Slogans, I don't want to mention any of them because I don't want to get anybody upset whether they're listening. You know. I'm just going to leave it up to you. Slogans, propaganda, simplistic ideas that everybody's really into for a while until they switch to something else. And they go from one thing to another thing, whatever the fad is on social media, whatever the fad is in Hollywood, whatever the fad is you know, among the kids. For a while, kids like fidget spinners. That's all you need to know about how deep, okay, how deep people are when they invent fads, okay? I told the kids when I was teaching in four or five years ago, they were with fidget spinners. I said to them, let me tell you something about these fidget spinners. In a few years, you're gonna have no use for this. You're gonna, you're gonna say this is the dumbest thing I ever wasted money. They were coming in with like fancy $100 fidget spinners. Okay, I said, this is a piece of junk. This is just a fad. Why are you following it? Because everyone else is doing it. You're just doing it because everyone else is doing it. It has no zero sense. Why are you doing it? No, you don't understand fidget spinners. They're amazing. They really believed it. I said, I'm telling you, I've seen every iteration of this and version of this over the past several decades. I guarantee you, in five, I knew when, when, when Cabbage Patch Kids were cool, okay? And Slinky and all that. They're all, nobody knows what they are anymore. Well, maybe they know what a Slinky is, but a lot of these things are, became obsolete. Okay, but at a time, there was a time when if you didn't have that, what, you didn't have a Cabbage Patch Kid? What kind of parents did you have? What kind of a, what, what kind of a person were you if you didn't have that? I'm bringing silly examples. But there are so many things like that in our society where trends don't ha- that don't have any meaning, but everybody gets into them. And there's social trends also. And there are, it's not just about toys. There are social trends. There are opinions that are the fashionable opinion to have in any setting, okay? Anything that is nuanced, anything that is complicated, nobody has any patience for it. Which slogan are you on? Are you on slogan A of this political party or slogan B? What if you say, well, you know, neither of them are really fully thought out. There's something in the middle that maybe is different than both of those that is more intelligent. No, they can't tolerate that. If you're not in slogan A, you're bad. If you're not in slogan B, you're bad. You have to pick a team. Okay? That's the way that people think. And that's what causes people to try to fit into one or the other camp, one or the other viewpoint. And that's exactly what Tegelim is talking about. A happy person is a person that nobody else dictates to me what I'm going to think. Nobody else dictates to me what I'm going to do. I'm not going to chase after the fads that allow me to fit in. I'm going to think for myself 
and use the tool of the Torah that Hashem gave me so that I know what I'm doing is consistent and intelligent and well thought out. Like I, I always quote this. I'll say it again, even though it's maybe not 100% true, but I would say 85% true. I usually mention it in this context that I had a professor many years ago, has to be at least 20 years ago now, probably more, yeah, it's gotta be more, who said, anytime I see a book on the, book, on the bestseller list, I would never read it. Why? Because anything that appeals to that many people can't be good. It has to be superficial, it has to be dumb, just like any movie that's too popular, must be made for the lowest common denominator. That's why it's so popular. Something that only a small group of people can appreciate is probably deeper. It's probably more meaningful. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I don't think it's 100% true because, there are, because people do have, an in, you know, have a mind and, and sometimes books or movies or art that really is substantive becomes popular because a lot of people are moved by it. So I, don't, I wouldn't say it's 100% true, but there's a lot of truth to the fact that the lowest common denominator is addressed a lot of the time in popular media. And real deep thought. It doesn't say that getting the wisdom of Torah is going to be easy. It's not going to be as easy as saying, which political party do I sign up for? Oh, I'm going to sign up for this party? Okay, now tell me everything I need to believe. Okay, I just need to believe these things, I'm good. That's how people think. Hey, it doesn't say it's going to be easy. It says, You really want to have an understanding that's going to guide your life? You need to invest day and night in doing it and seek it. You need to desire it and seek it and want it. It's going to liberate you from the influences of all of these other people. It's going to help you stand independently of them and not have to care what they think of you because you have a position and you have a view that is well substantiated and well founded and that you know and you have conviction is true you're not going to have to worry about anything else but it's not necessarily going to be easy that's why it says the person who desires it day and night they're going to have to work but the benefit is that they have a solid foundation a sense of what's right and wrong a sense of what's wise and unwise that is not tainted by the influences of anyone else and is not a matter of external forces impinging upon me to get me to conform. But it's something that comes from within my own understanding. I think this is the most important thing. The most important, and that's why David HaMelech I think starts with this. He says the first thing you need to know when you read Tehilim is if you're gonna form a view of the world that I'm trying to convey to you in Tehilim, it has to be a form, it has to be a view of the world that doesn't come from any other source but the source of Hashem's wisdom, the source of Torah. And that source can be internalized by you and become yours in a way that other people's opinions and fads and trends are never going to be. And, I, and, and, I, and that's why I think for kids, if there's anything we can teach kids to, I know it's, it's, a, it's maybe this itself became like a, uh, like a kind of a, uh, a cliche, but to teach kids to think for themselves intelligently and critically is so valuable because there's so little actual critical thought done. And now even in academia and in education, we've become so subjective. Oh, whatever the child thinks is equally is, is good. Whatever they feel is good. However they spell words, it's good. You know, we don't teach people to think rigorously and seriously about things we and then they expect everything to be handed to them uh and 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 if you've ever tried to have a really serious deep discussion with somebody who is from a different viewpoint than you you've experienced it they usually want to distill everything into the simplest most superficial black and white understanding that there is and if you try to engage them in anything deeper, uh, they, they can't even go there. They don't even have the ability to go there. So in equipping ourselves with the ability to think deeply and use... I, I'll tell you something. I went to graduate school. I don't think I saw 
real serious thinking anywhere in my education. Like I was, what, what I was learning in the in study of Torah was more advanced than anything I saw until I was in my doctoral program. Right? Meaning, even in college level, there was nothing that was similar to the level of rigorous study that you have in Torah. There was nothing. Nobody had the idea of really studying and thinking and challenging and questioning and engaging. Nobody has that. That's something you have. It's a gift that we have in the Torah that's given to us to be able to do that. And I didn't even see anything remotely like that kind of thinking until maybe graduate school. And even there, only a little. So we have to be very grateful that we're given these tools to be able to derive from deep thinking and engagement with Torah a way of thinking for ourselves that can help ourselves and not thinking using somebody else's brain or letting somebody else think for us. And I think that's what David Amalek is saying from the very beginning, that he wants to set out to give us the tools to do that through the book of Tehillim that's going to help shape our experience of life. You know, um, any thoughts? Now that I went on and on for a long time, any? I put you to sleep already. That was that was enough. When you read it, of course, it's probably better. Anything that you don't understand that you're reading, it's better to read it in the language that you understand. You can read anytime. I would. I, I suggest really reading. Look, the ideal, of course, I can give you the real, real answer, which is the best is to learn Hebrew. But the truth is that will hardly help you with Tehillim because it's so hard. The Hebrew is so hard that it will take you a long time to develop an understanding of Hebrew that you'll be able to understand Tehillim because it's so hard. The Hebrew is so hard. But in general, with prayers, with blessings, with Tehillim, it's always good to understand what you're saying. And if you can slowly begin to match up the Hebrew with the English meaning or whatever other language you're using to translate, that's even better. Because then you can connect to the words in the original. Because a lot of times the original has um, a sound to it or a feel to it that communicates like more than just the words themselves. Like any poetry. Like you translate any poetry into another language, it doesn't sound right. Like if you've ever read poetry in another language or literature or told a joke in another language and then you try to translate that into, into English, let's say, it doesn't come across the same way. So it's the same way with Tehillim. It doesn't communicate the same... It doesn't have the same rich layers of meaning without the original language. So if you can transition to the original language, that's, that's what I would recommend if you can do that. It takes a long time to do it. But if you do it little by little, like you take one line or a few lines at a time and you try to learn the meaning in English and then you next time you read it, you learn a little bit more, you can get there. It's just a matter of time. Any other questions? That's it? Okay. Good to see everybody.